and help us to sing your praises and your truths as we declare it even now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I invite you to lift your voices with us as we sing back Psalm 27 to the Lord. The Lord is my light and my salvation. You are our stronghold. We have nothing to fear, Jesus.
here. Good morning, Trinity Park Church. My name is Andy Yu, and I'm one of the pastors here. So glad for you to worship with us this morning. And also for those who are joining us online, welcome. Uh, I want to draw your attention right now as we transition from singing to confession. Now, why do we do this every Sunday? And I believe that as believers, you know, as a calling and a privilege that God has called us to come before him each time, you know, as we come with confidence to worship him, we also come with confidence knowing that even though we fail before him, even though that we're not perfect, yet God still invites us to come to him. And he invites us to come to him as his children, to be able to sing, to be able to rejoice, to be able to repent when we sin. And so this is a privilege and an opportunity for us to do so when we come together. And so I want to invite you right now as we look at these words, you know, whether you read it aloud now or if you want to just meditate in your own hearts, I just want you to focus on these words. And I'm going to give you a brief moment of silence after this to personally confess your own sins. All right? So would you join me as we read this? Holy God, hear our prayer for the mending of our hearts torn apart by our unkindness, for the healing of our souls wasting away from the despair around us, for the forgiveness we seek for sin we have allowed to persist, for the reconciliation of the world whose division condemns us. We pray for the courage to admit our fault, the strength to amend our actions, and the hope that your grace awaits us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Would you take this brief moment of silence to reflect or to confess? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for, for these words that reminded us, Lord, of our failures, of our weaknesses, of our impurities, of, you know, of us falling short before you all the time, Lord. But yet I thank you, Lord, even as we end these words, Lord, with hope, the hope that your grace awaits us simply because of what Christ has done for us. And so we thank you for Jesus who holds us together, for Jesus who made the way for us to boldly come before you even right now, to confess, to repent, and to seek assurance. And so I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his work on the cross. And as we continue to wait upon you, upon your return, Lord, upon Jesus returned to, to redeem all things, to, to make all things right. Yet it is in this hope, Lord, as we continue to wait, that we also remind that, Lord, that we live right now, presently, you know, doing the things that you've called us to do, to worship you, to serve you with our lives, with our job, with, with our family. And so I thank you for reminding us that. And also, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus Christ. 
as we look to you, as we wait, Lord, help us to anticipate, help us to look forward, help us to live with the hope of Christ in us each day. Thank you and ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here now this morning's assurance taken from 1 John 1 9. This is God's word to you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is the promise and the guarantee of God through Christ Jesus. Amen. At this point in time, we're going to transition to our offering moment. Um, here at Trinity Park Church, we are so grateful for your generosity to give to the church. You can give so online, and also if you're here, if you'd like to drop a check at our offering box next to the camera, you may do so as well. And so I want to continue to invite you to sing with us this morning as we stand together.
Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you guys. Uh, we're back from vacation. We had a great time away. Uh, importantly, I am not Eve Carricker, our children's ministry director. She is not feeling well. She had about a vertigo last night. Um, she hates not being able to be here to present this herself, but I'm going to try to stand in for her and, and do as well as I can, um, talking about the importance of our children's ministry. So um, you're going to hear after this, we're going to have two vision moments this morning because there's so much going on in our church right now. Uh, you're going to hear a building and finance update later, but we have about eight weeks until we restart children's ministry based on the timeline of our building, which we'll fill you in on more later. And that gives us a little bit of time to begin re-recruiting for children's ministry. Uh, we've had this very long and strange 18-month break uh, in our formal children's church and educational ministries for our children 0 through 12. And so uh, this vision moment is really about encouraging you uh, to get back involved as members and as regular attenders of the church, and I'll talk about that in a bit. So Trinity Park has been blessed with many children. In fact, um, the ratios of children to adults in our church is something like one-to-one or maybe even inverted uh, for children. The average church, the ratio is one-to-five. That's children to adults. In some churches that are kind of on the decline, it's one to ten. So in order for our children's ministry to work, we really all, every member, is really expected to serve in some way or another with our children, zero through 18. It's really the only way we can make this ministry work. Here's another fun fact about Trinity Park. In the last 18 months, um, we have had about 13 families leave our church either through moving out of the area or for other reasons. We've also had about 35 families, maybe even more, um, either join our church or begin regularly attending our church during COVID. And so it's a, I mean, just to acknowledge it, it's a really strange time. I mean, it's a strange time. We look around and you may not feel like you know very many people. I think we all kind of feel that way. Like we're trying to get a sense of who are we and how do we fit in in this new phase of life at Trinity Park. Well, pertaining to children's ministry, I just want to say that we need everyone to step up, including, you may, you may feel like, well, I've, I've been here for a while, but I don't feel very well connected. We really need everyone, all members, all regular tenders, uh, to, to serve in children's ministry. Now, a caveat to that is we have a child protection policy. We're very serious about protecting our children. And so our policy is that you need to have been at Trinity Park for six months to serve. That's, that's, our, our, that's our policy that was built in COVID uh, on an expectation that people come to church physically in person usually. Uh, and so that's still our policy, but we, we're going to implement that uh, graciously and with wisdom. So if you've been around for six months attending and we've gotten to know you and you're a regular attender now, we want to have a conversation with you about how you can serve in this ministry. So the way we do this is that we have a rotation on a trimester schedule. We started this right before COVID. It was going really well. And the way we do this is we split the year into to, to three trimesters. And so the way it works is that you volunteer in children's ministry or in youth ministry only for one trimester out of the year. And you're paired with another family or a couple of single people so that basically something like every other week for a trimester you serve. And then the rest of the year, you don't need to serve in children's ministry. That way you don't feel like you're always involved. But for that one trimester, you are very heavily engaged with the children. This is really good for the children as well, 
because there, there's some sense of continuity. Uh, the main reason we changed this is because the kids didn't know who was going to be their teacher every week. And so at least for a trimester, they have some continuity and consistency um, in children's church. Um, so who are we looking for as volunteers? Uh, we're looking for adults, parents, young adults, singles, older adults, elders, deacons, women, men, and high school students. So basically, we're looking for everybody, okay? And I do want to reiterate that, you know, when we, in the, in the Presbyterian Church in America, we, we take vows when children are baptized. And the last vow that is taken is by the congregation, and it's to assist the parents in the Christian nurture of the child. And we take this vow as a congregation, and we take it seriously. I mean, we all know that we need more than just ourselves to raise our children. Well, the best way to keep that vow that you take when children are baptized is by volunteering in children's ministry. Otherwise, it gets really amorphous, like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of helping. Well, the best way to help is to actually serve uh, in all the way from nursery all the way up. So in children's ministry, uh, this is an important statistic to recognize. There's really no more important ministry that a church can have than to the children of the church. Uh, the Barna studies show that 94% of those who become Christians become Christians before the age of 18. That certainly doesn't mean that there's a lot of people that have become Christians after 18. But most children become acquainted with the gospel and with Christ before 18. So Eve had this in her notes. She said, uh, Luke 10.2 says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We're asking you to pray about how God might use you and she's been praying for months about the restart of this children's ministry and how the Lord might use you to develop and shape the lives of our children. And so then I was going to come in at the end with a little pastoral word. And here's, so here's my pastoral word. Um, so I realize this is hard. I just want to say that. Like, this is weird. Like, we're restarting a lot of ministries at one time. And I just want to say that the most important ministry for us to restart is children's ministry. Okay. We have a lot of new visitors. Greeting ministry is important, but it's not as important as children's ministry. Um, I don't know if Joe wants me to say this, but, but, but leading worship is important, and it's really important. But it's not as important as teaching our children about Jesus. All right, Children's ministry is it. And so if we're going to put our effort into one thing, we need to put it into children's ministry. I recognize it feels overwhelming. It may feel overwhelming for you right now to even hang out with people socially like one night a week. Uh, I, I get it, man. Coming out of COVID, we have all these weird anxieties and emotions that, that get involved. But I just want to ask you and encourage you to, to take that step of faith to serve our children. One last thing I'll say too as well is I think right now I just want you to know that we have a COVID team. We're watching kind of what's going on with COVID. We're watching the Delta variant. Uh, we don't know what's going to be happening. We, we're not sure of our policies yet. And it is very important to protect our children physically. But pastorally, I just want to say that the spiritual health of your children is also extremely important. It's extremely important. And so it may feel like a bit of a risk to put your kids in children's ministry or to volunteer in children's ministry. But the spiritual health of your children lasts for eternity. We've already had 18 months where they... They've had training at home, I hope, and I believe that's been happening. But we all know that's not the same as having the ministries of the church come around you. So we all need to kind of galvanize our efforts at shaping our children in this next phase of the life of Trinity Park. We have an amazing building. We have a 
for the first time ever, we're going to have an incredible children's facility, but it only works if we have volunteers who can serve our children. So be praying. Um, at the at the end, today, I'm going to be sending out an email um, with a link to a survey. It's how to get plugged in at Trinity Park. It's going to include children's ministry and some other areas that you can indicate. We also, you can look on the app. Uh, there's a way you can fill out that survey on the app. We would love to hear from you about all kinds of ways you can get plugged in at Trinity Park. But the first question is about children's ministry because it really is paramount. Uh, we need everybody to get plugged in. All right, thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Zach Johnson. I serve here as a deacon and a member of our finance and building teams. I'm here to give you an overdue update on the building renovation behind us and the finances associated with that. The renovation has been managed by the building team, um, but because a lot of these remaining decisions to be made have such a strong financial component, the finance team and the building team have been teaming up to shepherd this the, the rest of the way to the finish line, if you will. And you might ask yourself, when is the finish line? When do we actually move into this space? And our target was early September. But uh, while most items have been on track, we've been encountering some supply delays and some setbacks in building materials. And so that's gonna push us back towards late September, um, most likely that third or fourth week of September um, before we can request a certificate of occupancy and occupy the building from the town of Cary. Only a three-week delay, though, I want to put this in perspective, is something to be thankful for. And regardless of the actual date, we're going to be in this building before it gets cold out here. The building progress is kept up to date on the app and on the website. I encourage you to check it out. Currently, HVAC, electrical, walls, plumbing, um, they're all in progress. It's looking really great in there. Um, feel free to peer in the windows. It's coming together very slowly, um, but assuredly. In terms of project budget, we are only over budget by 3%. That's $18,000. That is incredible. As far as these projects go, they're typically multiples of that. We've also had a landlord, which has been very responsive and generous in bringing aspects of the building up to code in the highest possible standard. And I really want to call out and thank Ryan Calverkamp. He's been working tirelessly as our unpaid church project manager, um, working with the contractor and doing tons of problem solving um, on all of those issues that arise with projects like this. So thank you, Ryan. Our budget overage has clearly put pressure on our cash flow projections as a church. The committee's been making every decision uh, based on its value and essentialness going forward. So we have a lot of nice-to-haves in this building, and unfortunately we've had to shelve those until a later time in order to keep this project affordable, which is our utmost interest here. We wouldn't begin this project behind us unless we had 100% of the funds in hand. And through God's grace, in only a few months' time, this congregation and the body and the body of Christ came forward with those funds. And we will complete this project without any debt, without any obligation. So I, I really want to emphasize how big of a deal that is and how much we can be thankful for that. However, to furnish the space, our building, we need additional help. Those items such as AV equipment, 
a stage, sanctuary chairs and youth ministry, furniture, that's all expensive and things the church doesn't have the funds for at the moment. The lack of these items doesn't keep us from worshiping in this space, but if we can muster the funds, it now is the time to make those purchases and install these things. The fundraising committee has done a great deal of job thinking through how to, how to handle this and do this in the best way. And through Charity Starchenko's skill, we have made a Deck the Halls website, a donation page, where people can give specifically or generally to the items in need for the building. In total, our furnishings need is $100,000. That may seem like a lot, but it can be accomplished quite quickly. The Deck the Halls website will go live this week and will be accompanied by a message to the church so that you know it's available. If you'd like to give today, you can. There's a drop down, an option for giving called the Deck the, the, Deck the Halls Fund. Um, you're welcome to give towards that, the general fund or the building fund. Um, it is all much appreciated. I also want to share one very special note that happened just this week, and I think it would be encouraging for you to know this. Sanctuary chairs, they're expensive. I know you all don't know this, but they're 60 to $80 a piece. And we were really struggling to find a cost-effective way to do this, and new chairs come with a four to six month delay in delivery. And I know everyone likes their camp chairs, but we were looking for a, a better solution than that. Um, I wanna credit Andy for finding on Facebook Marketplace a church in Wake Forest a large church that was getting rid of all 500 of their very nice sanctuary chairs. They're very nice. And we, we talked to them this week, and they agreed to sell their chairs, all their chairs, to us for $20 a chair. That's incredible. The savings, the savings because of this has allowed us to purchase all 500 chairs, whereas before we were looking to only purchase a fraction of what we need due to affordability problems. And so we are going to be able to fill our entire sanctuary for 30% of the cost. So this is really special and something I, I think you'll be really happy with when it comes time to move in. We're only two months away from this project being end, ended. I think that's exciting. We're excited to have this space of our own and start this new chapter together. We ask that you prayerfully consider joining us in affording the furnishings that we need for this building in a God-honoring and frugal way. Thank you for your help. And I just want to say a thank you to the finance team. Uh, Zach is on that team. Phil Kuhn is leading that team. Philip Zumbrin is there. Vernon Guthrie, uh, who's here. Greg Fitz uh, is on that team. I hope I'm not forgetting anyone, but I mean, these guys uh, have just served so faithfully, and now they're joining the building team. The building team uh, members as well uh, have just been serving like crazy. Stephanie Johnson's done a ton of work recently, uh, Philip Zumbrin as well on that, and so uh, these folks are having uh, regular Zoom meetings for hours on end trying to figure this out, and so there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes there. I just want to um, encourage you, y'all, um, when we, when we brought the need before you uh, last, gosh, I can't even remember when that was now, February, March, um, you guys and a few outside donors gave around $350,000, and I am incredibly grateful. That is a story that I tell people, and people are just blown away by your generosity. 
uh, to this church. And so we do not take that for granted in any way. Um, and I just want to encourage you that we can begin worship. We don't have to have a, the full $100,000 worth of items in order to begin. We'll be okay. We'll be fine without it. But I also want to emphasize that by the way we're going to do this Deck the Halls page that Charity is working faithfully on and we're going to release later this week is that you can give in increments. For example, like if you want to buy a set of chairs for your family and a visiting family, we're going to break it down in small increments so that it's, more, it's a little more digestible. You're like, I, okay, I think I can participate in this way. Or if you want to buy something for your family in terms of chairs or for your kids and children's ministry for your family, there's going to be a way to do that so that we can break it down. I think the most important thing is everyone participating in some way uh, that they feel that they can faithfully participate in. There's also going to be um, a, just a regular donate button. If you're just like, I don't want to, I don't feel like I got the capacity to get into all those details. I just want to give a lump sum. That's completely fine as well. The AV needs the sound system to hear Joe and to hear me. Uh, that comes in at about $45,000, to be honest with you. So it's hard to break that down. Uh, so there's a, there's a general need. There's a lot of general needs as well. But the good news is we are not going to have any debt, which is unbelievable. And that's only through the the work of all these people that I've mentioned being so meticulous financially about this project to not put us underwater. And we're almost on time, very close. I have a friend who's a pastor. They're in a building program right now. They're supposed to be done in August. They're, gonna, they're now delayed till October or November, just to put it in perspective. So three weeks versus three months is really, it's something we can handle. So uh, I know it's hot out here. I know we're in a parking lot, but the Lord is faithful. He's growing us. He's building us. And I'm just so grateful for all of you in the ways that you've been so faithful over the course of this 18-month uh, uh, stretch of time. We've been worshiping virtually and outdoors. Thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God. Lord, you are good because you know us. You care for us and you love us as your people. Lord, when we find ourselves struggling in the depths of despair, you lift us up from the miry bog and set us upon the rock. When we're in need, you give us so much more than we ask or imagine. When we suffer from debilitating circumstances, you strengthen us with the sufficiency of your grace and the power that is made perfect in our weakness. When we doubt and live in guilt, you reminded us that your love endures forever and that nothing could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so I want to thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for, for who you are. Thank you for standing by your word and keeping your promises to us. Thank you for your faithfulness, even when we are unfaithful. Lord, we come before you this morning with so many petitions and prayers. But at the same time, we are also thankful, Lord, in so many ways for your generosity, for your kindness towards us, whether if it's in our church or even in our own daily lives. Lord, we do not want to take anything for granted for how you have walked with us in this past 18 months or so to the pandemic. Lord, I want to thank you for protecting us in so many ways daily. Lord, I want to thank you for, for you know, blessing us with, with the small daily things that we have, Lord. Again, Lord, we want to come before you and want to thank you for all these things 
the big miracles or even the small daily things that are happening every day. Lord, we want to thank you for all these things. And God, we come before you this morning too. We pray and cry before you, Lord, you know, praying before you for the nations who are struggling, um, who are struggling to, to take hold of, of everything that's going on, you know, with regards to the pandemic, Lord. We pray specifically for the nation of Indonesia, who is now the epicenter of, of the pandemic, and that have been struggling and been overwhelmed with, with you know, all the deaths and all the sicknesses. Lord, as we celebrate the freedom that we have presently in our country, being able to worship, being able to un unmask, having the opportunities to have vaccines, Lord, I thank you for these things. But at the same time, I do want to pray and consider ma the many other nations out there who are struggling, who are struggling to get hold of all the vaccinations that they need, who are struggling to keep people healthy. Lord, I want to pray for them pray that, Lord, you would have mercy upon them. I pray that, Lord, you would bring resources to them. I pray to you, Lord, as a whole, that, Lord, I pray for your hand to lift us up from this sickness, from this cloud. Lord, I pray for your power, Lord, to be made known, to be made clear, to be greatly known, to overcome the power of this sickness, Lord. Lord, only you are able to heal us. Only you are able to provide for us. And so I pray that you help us to look to you. And God, too, we pray for our church. Lord, specifically, we pray for the members of our church who are struggling, who are sick, who are unwell. Specifically, pray for Evan Law, who recently tore his tendon, Lord. And Lord, even as he is recuperating right now at home, I pray just, Lord, that you continue to help him to navigate through his movements, to, to be able to rest well, to be able to heal well. I pray for Sarah, his wife, who is 30 weeks pregnant. Even as she is navigating through a pregnancy, she is also having to care for Evan and Lucy. And Lord, I know that she is overwhelmed right now, and I just pray, Lord, that you would have grace and mercy upon her. I pray too for us, Lord, that you would encourage us as a church to come alongside them and to help them in their needs. Lord, I pray too for our, our church as a whole. Lord, I thank you for the recent babies that were born that were born in our church. Lord, I thank you for continuously adding babies adding newborns to our church for multiplying our church to that way and i'm so thankful lord for the many visitors but many people that you've brought to our church Lord, i thank you lord even despite of not having a place where we can worship consistently you know in the past 18 months despite of having to struggle to all the tech uh, technical difficulties despite of worshiping in the cold worshiping in the heat Lord, I thank you for the faithfulness of these people that you have brought to our church and also our, our own members too who have you know, been with us all these while. I thank you for growing our church even as we are encouraged by the, the statistics that Corey read earlier. Lord, how you have grown our church, how you have brought people together. 
how you've united our hearts together, even through this pandemic and through all the recent struggles that we have. I thank you, Lord. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kindness. And I pray for us as a church as we continue to live and grow together, even as we are looking forward to worshiping together in this building too, Lord. I'm, I'm excited at the prospect. I'm excited in how you've brought us all along, how you've been faithful to us. I pray too, Lord, that you continue to bind us together in unity as we navigate through all the details and all the things that we have to consider and plan for when we worship together. How we have to recruit volunteers, how we have to start all the ministries back up, especially the children's ministry. I pray, Lord, that you give us grace, that you help us, each and every one of us, to live in grace and patience with each other and in kindness with each other. Help us to bear each other's burdens, even when we struggle, when they struggle. Help us, Lord, to consider each other's needs. Help us to learn together to walk humbly before you, Lord, knowing that we all have fallen short before. And so I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as we think about all the details, but at the same time think about how relationally that we're called to live together, worship together, grow together, because we are a family. And I pray, Lord, that you guard us against, you know, division, guard us against um, any unkind words, guard us against frustrations and angers, guard us against gossips, guard us against slander. I pray, Lord, that you help us to walk, Lord, humbly before you, to walk together in kindness before you. And I pray too for our building, Lord, as we, you know that there are still some needs that we need. And I know that, Lord, you are a generous God that you will provide in your own way. You provide in spectacular ways and you provide to, to your people as well. And so I do not want to take anything for granted and to just continue to commit ourselves before you, trusting you to provide for us. I pray for the ongoing work of construction. I'm thankful that there isn't much delay in it, but at the same time, I pray against further complications and delays, Lord. I pray too, Lord, even as we are setting on, 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 go, on worshiping together in this building inside, Lord, even as we begin to think through how we may learn to serve our communities around here, I pray too, Lord, for opportunities to begin conversations to begin, you know, thinking through how we could plan and serve these people. I pray, Lord, that you give us hearts of service, hearts of compassion for those around us and for each other. And Lord, lastly, I pray, Lord, even as we come before you right now, as we look to your word, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to, to guide us with your word, Lord. I pray for lives transforming changed by the power of your word. I pray for true conviction and guided by living on your word alone. And so I pray for your word this morning to be preached powerfully, to be read and preached powerfully to us, Lord. And I praise you and I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good morning. Today's reading comes from Acts chapter 25, verse 23, and chapter 26. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. But it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to point you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have helped. I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in the corner. 
King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. So, <clears throat> going back to the very beginning of this rather long sermon series, we called this series Jesus in Our Place. Jesus in Our Place. That's the response to the Great Commission. You know, when Jesus hung on the cross, he hung there in our place. And as he hung there, he hung there with the confidence before his Father, knowing that the Father received his sacrifice. The Father received his blood shed on the cross for the remission of of sins. The whole gospel starts with Jesus being in our place. Then later throughout Acts, you get to the stoning of Stephen. And the stoning of Stephen is remarkable, not only because Saul, now Saul, now Paul, was overseeing the murder, and here he's now testifying on behalf of Christ. But when Stephen died, and when he was martyred and was being stoned, he stood, it said his face was like that of an angel. And even in the presence of his persecutors, he knew that he, before the presence of God, had been justified, that God in the heavenly courtroom had received the payment of Jesus Christ for his sins, had received Stephen's life. And so Stephen could be bold in this moment to, to have confidence before God that he knew that Christ stood in his place. And here Paul goes before Agrippa. Agrippa had another name. His name was Herod Agrippa. He was in the, the line of Herods, and here he is before another Herod. This is the fourth Herod in the gospel story. There's this constant interplay between Jesus and his followers and the Herods. Herod the Great, if you remember, back when Jesus was born, tried to kill Jesus. And then later, Herod's son, when Jesus died, he went before this Herod. That Herod also beheaded Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. This Herod Agrippa's father, if you remember back to Acts chapter 12, was eaten by worms because he was so arrogant that he thought he stood in the place of God. So here now, Paul is before another Herod, and his confidence to stand in this throne room, to stand in this courtroom before this Herod, has not to do with his own self-confidence, but with the confidence that Christ had died, that Christ had already gone into the heavenly courtroom, he had already made payment for his sins, that he, he could stand there like Stephen who stood there with the face of an angel knowing that this little mocking, this mockery of, of justice that was happening there, that Christ had already been exalted. And so Paul can go in with the same confidence knowing that Jesus had stood in his place. You know, Paul, you know, at that point in his life, he probably did want to be there in that courtroom. But he wasn't there by choice. He was there by force. And oftentimes in our lives, we find ourselves in situations where we did not choose to be. In fact, if we could have written the story, we would not have wanted to be in that particular trial that we are facing. 
We didn't want to go through what we've been through the last 18 months. We didn't want to go through a pandemic. You may not want to be in the type of marriage that you find yourself living in right now. You may not want to be struggling with the type of besetting sin or struggle that you are going through right now. But Jesus came into our place, and because Jesus came into our place and shed his blood, we can know that right now, in whatever place we find ourselves, we are justified, that we are loved by God, that he is with us in this moment. Even if we didn't choose to be where we are, we didn't choose to have friends move on and and move to other places or move and leave the church, we didn't choose to be in a situation like that. It can be painful. We didn't choose to have to worship outside in a parking lot in the middle of the summer. But wherever we find ourselves, the reality is that Jesus is in that place with us. He is an incarnational God. That's why churches right now are worshiping in parking lots. They're worshiping under big trees. They're worshiping in secretly rented apartments around the world. They're worshiping in cathedrals. They're worshiping in recently renovated places or old church buildings We're called wherever you find yourself, whatever children the Lord has given you, whatever spouse, whatever friends, whatever situation, we are called now to follow Christ and to bring Jesus into our place. And so we can learn from Paul in this moment as he brings Christ into his place. So we're going to walk today through three points. The first is the scene of Paul's defense. We're going to set the scene and then the substance of Paul's defense substance, and then finally the response Paul receives to his defense. We're going to end with their response and our response as well. First of all, the scene of Paul's defense. This is mainly uh, verse 23 and the rest of chapter 25, which uh, for time's sake, we didn't read the whole thing. But the people who are present here, the main people who are present that Paul is making his defense before is Agrippa, Herod Agrippa, and Interestingly, his sister and his lover, Bernice, okay? So we've just talked about the, Fer- the Herod family history. There's more to it than that. This is a very, very broken family where Herod Agrippa is um, involved in a relationship with his sister. It's an incestuous relationship, and they are brazen about their relationship. They, appear, they make public appearances together and not trying to hide it in any way. Bernice and Agrippa, the second, this, this Herod Agrippa, were the brother and sister of Drusilla, Felix's wife, from last week. It's a complicated story, but basically you have people who are in power who should never be empowered. These people are not meant to rule. But yet the story for us is, and Paul is making his defense of the gospel, and he goes into this great effort to explain the gospel to them. And what I think that shows us is that the gospel is for everyone. That Jesus takes time for everyone. You know, you may have a really messed up family history. We all do to some extent, let's be honest. Um, But you may have a really messed up family history. You may have a really sexually broken history. And, And Jesus takes time for you. Jesus comes into our place. Paul takes this whole chapter, one of the greatest explanations of the gospel, and his main effort is to convince, convince this man, Herod Agrippa, to become a Christian. Not just to let him go, but to, to know Jesus Christ. Agrippa's current kingdom is this. He was a young man when his father was eaten by worms, also traumatic. 
experience. Not sure he'd process that one. Um, but Nero is the current emperor who he calls Lord or Emperor in verse 27 of chapter 25. And at this time, excuse me, Nero became the emperor later. Claudius put him in power at this particular time and made him in charge of the affairs related to the temple and made him uh, over the affairs of the high priest in Jerusalem. So he was overseeing religious affairs. Then later Claudius passed and Nero came into power. Festus is a governor here. He's a good governor. He's better than his predecessor, but he was completely untrained in Judaism. He had no understanding of what was going on with these religious affairs, and so he was deferring to Agrippa. He recognized when he heard Paul's speech the first time that he had zero clue what Paul was talking about, and so he's deferring the case to Agrippa because at this time, Nero was in power at the time of the trial, and he had an obligation to Nero that if he is going to eventually send, he's going to send Paul up to Nero, there has to be a basis for the charge. And as it currently stands, he really can't describe it to him. And so he's deferring it to Agrippa to see if Agrippa can make a judgment in this matter. So Nero is not on the scene itself, but he's standing in the background. Festus refers to him as his lord in verse 26 and 27. That word is kurios. It's the same word we use to describe Jesus' lordship in the Greek. He's also called emperor or Caesar, which means the revered one. So Festus pays, pays homage to Nero here. And if you don't know anything about Nero, Nero's first five years were a reign of peace, but eventually he turned on Christians and essentially went to war with them. And he was the one who killed Peter upside down by crucifixion and then Paul ultimately will die at the hands of Nero. So this is the scene. It also says that Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp, great pomp and circumstance. These people were in power. They were rich. They invited all the wealthy people in with them. There's power. There's money. This trial takes place in the provincial palace of Festus. There's pedigree. These are people who had really, quote, unquote, made it in life. But looking back through history, we find it interesting that the real man of honor in the room is the man on trial, Paul. Why? Paul is the man that we look back to in this age in history with the most notoriety, the most fame. Why? Because he's connected to Jesus Christ. The reality is that your life may be entertaining and you may have some cash to throw around and, and may be able to afford a comfortable life, but without Christ, ultimately... Um, your life loses meaning. We have to be connected to Jesus Christ, the one that carries us through into eternity, the man of real meaning. So in this moment, we have Herod's family history going on. We have the martyrdoms of key men of the faith, of John the Baptist, of Peter, of James, the brother of John. And we have Paul, Jesus' key witness, standing directly in front of a Herod for the first time since Jesus had died. This is the first time a key Christian leader had stood in front of a Herod. So up until this time, Christianity had been gaining uh, notoriety and momentum among more common people. There were a few people of note uh, who carried weight that became Christians, but this is the first time that Christ and his followers are coming before a king, 
um, in this era of the church. And so it's kind of a big moment in the history of the church. Paul is presenting the gospel before kings. So let's get into the substance of Paul's defense. This is the largest section. It's verses 1 through 23. So first of all, his audience in the moment is he's really trying to convince Agrippa. He says he considers himself fortunate to stand before him today to make his defense to the accusations of the Jews. Paul knows that Agrippa is really the only one in the room that has the understanding and the awareness to understand all of the customs, all the ceremonies, all that goes on within Judaism to be able to give Paul a fair hearing. And so that's what he's going for. And Agrippa also has the authority on the legality and illegality of, action, of Paul's actions. So this is his audience. His hope, we find this in verses 4 through 8. Paul's hope is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's very careful to say that Jesus and his kingship and his resurrection, it's not an aberration. It's not a detraction. It's not a distancing from historical Judaism. That Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament histories. He's saying all the Old Testament was pointing somewhere. It was not an end in itself. We've all been waiting for the Messiah, and Jesus is it. He says that in verse 7. He says this, this is the promise of the 12, t- 12 tribes they're hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. He's saying, I am a true Jew, that Jesus was the true Jew. He fulfilled the law, and I stand with Jesus. So then in verse 8, This question rings out in the courtroom. Why should any of you find it incredible that God raises the dead? So Paul is hinging his whole argument, not only in that Jesus is the continuity of the Old Testament, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, but that his resurrection from the dead is essential for him proving that he is the true Messiah. He's saying it very directly. His his hope is in the fulfillment of the resurrection. This has actually been his key argument in every trial going forward, if you notice, that every time Paul is being charged, he always brings up the resurrection. Not only can it be strategic at times to divide up the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but for real, Jesus' kingship and him being the Messiah, the anointed one, is wrapped up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is the resurrected king. Having, he's saying, having a Messiah who overcomes death is not just a helpful add-on to make Jesus uh, something interesting. He's saying this is the gospel. This is the hope that we Jews have been waiting on. This proves he is God's chosen one. And I just want to take a moment and say, how much do we need the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be true? Not just every day, but particularly in this moment in the world. As COVID continues to rage, as we are are seeking to get a handle on it through a vaccination, which, by the way, also someone in our church who works in producing vaccinations reminded me that that is also a gift from God, that we have a vaccination. This is not merely the work of scientists. This is something that the Lord has provided through the work of scientists. And so we should be really grateful for that. But even so, even in the face of having vaccinations at lightning speed, which is awesome, we still do not have power over death. We still don't have power. 
I just read a study last week that came out that the average life expectancy for Americans dropped by over two years last year. By over two years, mainly because of COVID. That's the largest drop since World War II. Previous to that, it was the largest drop since the Spanish influenza of 1918. This has been a traumatic year for us where we've been thinking about death all year long. How much do you need a king today who has overcome death? My father's best friend's grandson, who was my kid's age, just last week overdosed on fentanyl. He was in the, in the hospital the day before the doctors had finally had saved his life. He was about to die. He went back out the next day and overdosed on fentanyl. How much do we need a God who has overcome death? How much do we need this right now? Whatever we face, I have, I have all kinds of friends, and so do you who are facing life-threatening circumstances. We need a king who doesn't just save us from our sins, which certainly we do. We need a king who does something about the, the result of sin, the consequence of sin, which is death and brokenness in this world. And that is what Paul is saying Christ has done for us, that he has come and he has brought new life into the world that has not just paid for sins but has conquered death, and that's why he is the true king, the true king in COVID or cancer or car accidents or drug overdoses. Then he goes on in verses 9 through 11 to talk about his zeal. He's saying, he's emphasizing his blindness that he once used to think people like him were crazy. And so he's identifying with Herod Agrippa. He's saying, you may think I'm crazy. Listen, I've been there. My zeal used to also blind me to the truth about Jesus Christ until, he says in verses 12 through 18, I had a vision where Christ confirmed to me on the road to Damascus. Now, this is Paul. I want to go back and just emphasize this. I know that you're like, okay, he's going to tell his testimony again. Yeah, he is. And I just want to emphasize to you, yeah, he is. He's telling his basically same testimony again. This is what Paul does. And so, again, what do we need to do when we have an opportunity to talk about our faith? Yes, you absolutely want to talk about Jesus Christ. Yes, you can talk about some different proofs that you've found that make it more reasonable for you to believe. But you talk about what Christ has done in your life. And for Paul, what had happened? Paul had seen this blinding light on the road to Damascus, and the light spoke to him, and it was Jesus Christ. And Jesus being alive in that moment and speaking to Paul confirmed to Paul that the resurrection was true. He was speaking to a God who was alive. And that changed everything for them because this God, Jesus Christ, who spoke to him with a bright voice, he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. There's two things about this account in particular when he's telling his story that are slightly different than other times. And this is also a lesson for us. When you're telling your story, yeah, the basic story always remains the same. But sometimes, depending on who you're talking to, you might emphasize different elements a little bit more to help them relate to what you're saying. And so he specifies in this account that Jesus spoke to him in Aramaic, which was the Jewish language, the heart language of Jerusalem. The religious leaders spoke Aramaic. And so this was a big deal. This is a big deal that Jesus spoke the heart language of Agrippa. That's a big deal. Then he also adds in something else that he didn't add in other times. As he says, uh, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? The idea of this is, 
Is it hard for you to resist the sovereign work of God, Paul? Paul, isn't it hard for you, as gifted as you are, as zealous as you are, as passionate as you are, for you to resist God? Isn't it hard for you to try to make the world the way you want it to be rather than the world as it is, which is under my sovereignty? And so Paul finds himself bending the knee, and what is the message for Agrippa? It's this, Agrippa, isn't it hard for you to resist what you, Paul believes he's beginning to feel and discern may be true? And so Paul goes on, and he says, this, my zeal had blinded me to the truth about Jesus, but then when I met Jesus Christ and he spoke to me, I realized that he was the fulfillment of history. He was the one we had been waiting on. Because Paul believed, and his understanding of the Old Testament, is that they needed a Messiah that wouldn't just lead them out of, um, of po- political oppression. They needed a Messiah who would work spiritually, who would even raise the dead, who would enliven the hearts of people. And so he believed about the pro- prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others who pointed to a Messiah who would restore people with a new heart, with resurrection life. He's saying that Jesus is the true fulfillment in his resurrection of the Old Testament. And so in this moment, Paul is converted by Jesus. But this scene is also where Paul receives his commission by Jesus. It's not often that you in your conversion moment also receive your commissioning moment. But that's what happened for Paul is Paul understood that Jesus came into his place to pay for his sin. But then he understood in his commissioning that his call was to take Jesus Christ into whatever place that Jesus called him to be. And if you remember back previously, Paul didn't originally really want to go to the Gentiles. In fact, he really tried to talk Jesus out of calling him to the Gentiles on the road to Damascus. He was like, Lord, are you sure? I don't think I'm really the best candidate to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Jesus, once again, is saying, listen, I've got this. I know what I I want you to do. And I find that instructive for us as well, because when we, we receive our commissioning from Jesus, oftentimes Jesus calls us into places that we didn't necessarily want to go. We didn't really want that calling. That wasn't really tops on our list. Listen, very, very few of us end up in a place, in fact, maybe none of us end up in a place, where we feel like all the choices we made just kind of lined up and it all worked out, and we actually ended up doing the thing that we just really always wanted to do. Almost never happens. We almost all, in fact, I'll go ahead and say every single one of us, if you're wise and discerning, you've had adjustments along the way. The Lord, you've had aberrations from the story. In God's sovereignty, it's exactly what he planned, but it's not what you planned. And yet, that's where Jesus calls Paul, and that's where Jesus calls us to bring Christ into our place. Paul is called to go to the Gentiles. It says in verse 18, the call, why is this needed? Because the gospel is needed in that broken place with these broken people. They need to have their eyes opened, verses 17 and 18. They need to be turned from darkness to light, from Satan to God. They need a change of belief. They need a change of kingdoms. They need to receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, a change of status. 
You see, the fact is that Jesus came into our place, and now he wants his gospel to go out into every place, every tongue, every tribe, every nation under heaven, every tongue, every tribe, every nation here in Cary and in the triangle and around the world. Jesus came and was incarnate and died and shed his blood so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, like we see in Revelation 7, will worship him together around the throne. And so Paul's closing argument in verses 19 through 23, he closes it up by explaining to Agrippa why he's really on trial. He's saying why I'm really on trial is because I have preached a gospel of grace that flies in the face of ceremonial Judaism. I have preached a gospel of grace that means this gospel is for you, Agrippa, and you, Bernice, and you, Festus, and you, Pharisees, and for me, and for all the Gentiles, that there is no righteousness that comes through our own self-effort, that you can't be bad enough that Jesus' grace isn't enough for you, and you can't be good enough that Jesus' grace isn't enough for you. I'm on trial, Agrippa, because this gospel it does break down the righteousness that is gained through the ceremonial law. I'm not against the law. I'm for the law. I'm for the fulfillment of the law in Christ. But the fact is this gospel of grace that I preach is on a collision course with the ceremonial law. The fact is this gospel is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, but the Jews don't see it, and that's why I'm on trial today. And so he gives a final verse. It says, he says, so I stand here in verse 22. So I stand here, those words. Those words have rung throughout history. So I stand here. Paul said these words in Acts 26 when he was on trial before Herod. Later, another man would use these words, Martin Luther, when he's on trial, before another group of religious Zealots who also don't understand the gospel at the time, the Catholic Church at the time, were saying that, how did righteousness, righteousness come? It came through your own religious self-effort. It came through obeying the religious authorities blindly by doing what they said, and so you could, you could gain access to the throne room of God. When he was on trial, eventually he said, I stand here, I can do no other, so help me God. Later on, in 2018, another person who we're familiar with, Wang Yi, had the same battle. This wasn't with religious leaders, this was with government leaders, who told him if he would just recant, he would just renounce, if he would just not speak against Xi Jinping, the president, then maybe he could go free. And Wang Yi said, no, I stand here. This is where I stand. I stand with the gospel of grace. I'm not going to be bullied into a corner. And so for us, it's a lesson as well. We need to stand with Jesus Christ. We need to stand with him. We need to stand with his grace. No matter what we face in life, no matter what pressures we face internally in our own lives, in our own families, in our own churches, in the world today, there is such a temptation. I was emailing with someone about this this week. There's a church in our, in our community, I'm not going to mention its name, that has really lost, they've lost it. They've walked away from biblical orthodoxy. They've walked away from grace. They've walked away from Jesus Christ as being the only way for salvation. And that you're called to follow him. 
They don't take the God, they don't take the Old Testament seriously. They say they take Jesus seriously, but everything else is up for grabs. So that just doesn't work. That's not biblical orthodoxy. Listen, in this moment, people are, are choosing sides. People are leaving the Bible. They're leaving Christ as the, the sole basis and substance of our hope. They're, we're, we're being charged uh, to, to minimize the significance of Jesus, to be, just be good people, to just kind of blend into culture. Listen, we can't do that. We have to stand with Christ. So I stand here for Paul's words, Martin Luther's words, and Wang Yi's, and many others who have come as well. So how will Agrippa and the others respond? I'll close with this. Well, Festus thinks he's out of his mind. He says, your great learning is driving you insane. Well, Paul is anything but out of his mind. This guy's brilliant. He is rocking it. He is not having a problem logically arguing. Now, Festus just doesn't understand. He, he just doesn't get it. I mean, he, so these things are spiritually discerned, and Festus, it just, this goes right over. Agrippa, he gets it. He gets it, and he asks this deflecting question. Eventually, he, he gets down. He says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? And that's after Paul says, I think the king is familiar with these things because these things have never happened in a corner. Listen, when we get in this building, we don't want to leave our Christianity inside the building. When we, you don't want to just leave your Christianity inside of your home. We're called to bring Jesus into our place, not just this address right here behind me, not just your home address, into this place. We're called to bring Christ into our place. That's what the early church has always done. That's what the church has always been about. There may be a time in our country where they're like, look, you can be a Christian, but you have to keep it to yourself. And if you don't, there are going to be consequences. That's just not, that's not going to work because we don't keep Christianity in a corner. It's a public faith that we are called to. And so Paul challenges Agrippa. He makes a very daring move. He senses interest in Agrippa, and he says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. It's really important when you are sharing your faith with someone to eventually challenge them to a response. I'm not saying the first time. This is a, a moment that must be discerned by the Holy Spirit. But I remember when I, I've been through all kinds of evangelism trainings, and, and one thing that's very rarely done, for some reason, is that people at the end of sharing the gospel don't ask the person, what do you think? Do you believe that what I've said is true? We don't do it because maybe we're scared. You know, maybe we're scared of being rejected by them. Maybe we're scared of being asked a question that we don't know the answer to. But conversion most often happens when that gospel question is answered. What do you think? Do you believe what I have just presented to you? And that's what Paul does. It was clever and bold. It was clever because now Agrippa was the one in the corner. He said, yeah, if I believe, then... He's on, the, he's on the hook. He's got to believe. But if he says he doesn't believe, then he's contradicting potentially the prophets of the Old Testament. But Paul is living according to his own words in Acts 20, 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He knows actually this man, what's so bold about it, this man has the power to lock him up, has the power to, execute him. 
But Paul asked the question anyway. Agrippa deflects, and Paul says, whether or not in a short time or long, I pray that you'll be like me except for these chains. Eventually, Agrippa and Festus refer the case up to Nero, who then uh, would try Paul. And I'll just say this. What is your response to Jesus? What's your response? Where do you find your sense of importance, your identity? Do you find it in the power that you wield and the money that you have and the comfort that you have? Or do you find your sense of identity in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you in your place on the cross? What do you understand the substance of the gospel, of the good news that has come into the world to be? What is your good news? Are you looking to what happened last week, and it's just a barometer of was it a good week or a bad week, or were my kids generally obedient, or my husband and I get along, or did the bank account, is it more flush than it was a year ago? I mean, you can't live like that. You can. It's a terrible way to live. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died in your place so that you could have a set identity, you could be forgiven, that you could be loved. So how will you respond to Jesus? Do you respond to him as your curios, as your Lord, or as someone else? Do you deflect the question? May, I, don't, I don't know, maybe you don't understand, but, but if you do understand, you feel like the gospel is hitting you, don't deflect the question. Instead, receive the gospel of grace. And like Paul, after receiving his grace, let's receive that call as well to bring Jesus into our place. Wherever you find yourself today, you may not be going before a king anytime soon to share the gospel, but that is no more important than sharing the gospel in your family, with your children, with your friends, in the group that God has set you, in your work, in your place, whatever God has called you to do and be. The world needs to know the gospel of grace. Let's continue to bring Christ into our place. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that we, in the midst of our lives, we have a sure and present hope because of the resurrection of Christ. That this hope of the gospel, it transcends all of our other circumstances. So that we, like Jesus, when we face the crosses of our lives, can stand before you, Father. We can know that you have accepted Christ's payment for our sin on our behalf. We can know, like Stephen, as we are being we are under the trials of this world. We're facing all kinds of difficulties. We can look to you with faces unashamed, angelic, because we know that, Christ, you love us, and you have seated us in the heavenly realms with you. Lord, we can be like Paul in the great trials of our lives, knowing that ultimately whatever courtroom we feel like we find ourselves in, that no one, though, though others may condemn us, that you will never condemn us that no one's condemnation here on earth will mean that we are condemned in heaven. And I think that we can stand with you, Lord Jesus. I pray for, for us that we will, and I pray for myself, Lord, in the place where you have, you have placed us, in places maybe we didn't expect to be or in some cases didn't want to be. Lord, I pray, God, that you would help us to embrace that commission, that call to bring you and your grace and glory into our place. We pray in Jesus' name. Brothers and sisters, would you stand as we close in song? Let's use this as an opportunity to respond to this great gift of grace that we receive in Jesus Christ.
second, but I wanted to call your attention over here to Alexei and Larissa and their kids. So Alexei has a new job, and uh, the best thing for that new job is for them to move to Charlotte, uh, which is really sad, but they're leaving this week, moving down to Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. Uh, we love them. They've been a part of our church since, I think, 2013. Uh, they're some of our closest friends personally, and uh, so anyway, I just want to let you know they would love to have you come over and, and say, it's not really goodbye because they're not that far away, but but they're no longer going to be coming here regularly for worship, and uh, that's a sad thing. So make sure you go down, and, and actually the, the new job is an awesome blessing for their family, and the Lord's provided in amazing ways for them. And so it is the right decision, but it's just hard for us on this end. So uh, make sure to greet them on the way out. All right, receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours today, world without end. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you.